Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Wednesday, April 22nd. We begin with our weekly Ask the Doctor series. Infectious disease specialist Dr. Craig Janney from the University of Calgary answers your COVID-19 questions. Then we catch up with Mike LeCouture, Global News Parliamentary Correspondent, with a tee-up of the government's new emergency response benefit aimed at helping Canadian students during this crisis. Next, we look at the ongoing search for a COVID-19 vaccine. We speak with an expert in the field of microbiology and immunology on how rushing the process could lead to a vaccine that may do more harm than good. The death toll in the Nova Scotia shooting has climbed to 23. We get the latest details on the investigation into the tragedy from Global News Halifax reporter Sarah Ritchie. And finally, cyberbullying is on the rise as kids across the country are spending more time in front of their screens during the pandemic. How to spot the signs of cyberbullying and what action you should take if your child is a victim. It is 8-11 on the morning news. We've been getting calls, texts, and emails over the past several weeks asking for answers to COVID-19 questions. That's why we bring on an expert every Wednesday to help. Joining us is Associate Professor of the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary, Dr. Craig Janney. Good morning, Doctor. Good morning. And it's interesting because I think we have more questions lined up this week than the previous week. So the questions keep on coming. And as mentioned, at 403-974-8255, you can text them in. It doesn't matter if uh, we're repeating some of them because the answers need to be, uh, you know, found by the uh, specialist here. So, Dr. Janney, here's the first one. Is COVID-19 considered an airborne virus? So officially, no. So this is not a virus that travels through the air, but it does travel in tiny little liquid droplets in the air. So if somebody coughs or sneezes, they're going to release those little droplets, and that's how the virus moves around. So what is it considered if it's not considered an airborne virus? It's one that does require close transmission. So something like measles is airborne. If somebody was to cough or sneeze in a supermarket with measles, it will be in the air for three or four hours. This virus tends to fall out of the air pretty quickly oh, okay. because it's in the little droplets. Okay, on a related note, question is, does normal breath pass the virus? So if a person has a virus, will their breathing contain the virus or just a sneeze or a cough? So regular breathing wouldn't, but we know that almost everybody still uh, releases little droplets when they're talking uh, and uh, in some cases in normal breathing. So it, this is exactly where the confusion with masks ha- has come in. We know that everybody that has the virus is likely shedding it and the masks on an infected person can help knock that down a little bit. Next one, why are we so hopeful for a vaccine for COVID-19 when we still don't have one for SARS? Are we not being too overly optimistic and uh, setting ourselves up for disappointment? I don't think so. I think one of the reasons why we don't have a vaccine for SARS is really the pressing nature of that outbreak sort of ended. We were able to contain it. And for example, we don't have any new SARS cases today. And when that pressure uh, eased, there really became less motivation and less global cooperation to build a vaccine. This one doesn't appear to be going away. So we do have multiple countries and, and right now more than 30 different vaccines in trial. So we're quite optimistic we will have a working vaccine for this one. Let's talk a little bit about masks, doctor. Someone asking specifically, can the N95 mask be disinfected with Lysol spray? And for that matter, can any mask be disinfected that way? So a number of agencies have been testing this. I would not recommend doing it yourself. I've not seen any positive results on how to sterilize these masks short of uh, specially designed ultraviolet light. So again, these have to be specially designed to get all parts of the mask. If you're adding a chemical such as Lysol, then you run the risk of inhaling that chemical when you put the mask back on if it's not properly uh, removed from the mask after. So I would definitely not recommend doing that uh, at home. 
Can the virus be transmitted through a dog or a cat? So right now we're, we have zero evidence that anybody has ever caught the disease from a dog or cat. What is clear is that people can give it to their dogs. The dogs don't get sick, but we can detect virus in the dog. But it seems to be a one-way dead-end infection where the animal doesn't get sick and the animal never passes it back to us. Okay, let's quickly just go back to the mask questions because yeah. here's another one. Uh, I've mixed feelings about wearing the mask. Do you think it's necessary to wear it going to the grocery store for a person who's healthy, has no symptoms? So uh, I think there's two different pieces in there. If you're healthy and not infected, the mask is not going to protect you from somebody else. However, if you are infected but no symptoms, there is a risk you are shedding the virus. And the request to wear masks has really been uh, put in place to avoid people who are infected from releasing the virus. So it's not going to help a, an uninfected person aka healthy but just because you're asymptomatic doesn't mean you're not infected and that's why the the request was for everybody to wear masks because we don't know who's infected how long will the virus be on a surface like a doorknob or counter and how does it get there so it gets there when we either cough into our hand or rub our mouth, rub our face, and then touch the doorknob. Um, how long it lives there depends on the surface. We've seen some surfaces like copper, only a, a matter of a half hour or so. Um, conventional surfaces, paper, cardboard, about one day, and then clean, smooth, plastic, metal, uh, just regular doorknobs around the house, about three days it can live. That is under optimal conditions. Most viruses will not uh, make it that long in the real world. Speaking of in the real world, this summer, are summer temperatures high enough to kill the virus, doctor? I doubt it. Um, right now, we do still see uh, infection in Europe, the infection in the south of France, in Spain, in Italy, places where the temperatures are as hot as it's going to get here in the summer, and it hasn't stopped the virus yet. So we don't think temperature is going to be a big uh, impact on this particular virus. Here's our first one, doctor. Is there any evidence the virus can live on or in food? Very topical right now. So I haven't seen clear evidence of transmission through food, but we do know that if somebody has it on their hands and, for example, touches a, a plate or you know uh, the surface of, let's say, a sandwich, a wrap, there's a good chance it can be there. So we do ask that you know if you're if you're doing takeout food to do stuff that can be reheated at home. That will absolutely kill the virus. And the biggest thing is to ensure you throw away the outside wrappers. So that's where most people have touched. So unwrap your food, put it on a, on one of your own plates, throw out the wrapper, wash your hands things should all be good. Is asthma considered an underlying medical condition that puts you more at risk if you get COVID and does the severity of asthma matter? Yeah, so we've seen some reports that this is one of the underlying conditions and unfortunately severity does matter. So anything that potentially compromises lung function or uh, influences inflammation or immunity in the lungs, such as asthma can directly play into the host response or your body's response to, the vi to this virus and potentially can make the inflammation worse. So uh, unfortunately that is an underlying condition that we do watch out for. Doctor, if I use my sleeve of my jacket to open the door or any other thing, should I wash my jacket right after? Afterwards. Uh, yes. So <laughs> basically what you've done is uh, if there is virus on the, the, the door handle, it is now on your sleeve. And at some point, if you end up rubbing your face or touching your sleeve with your hand, it can be transmitted back to your hand. This is actually one of the big fears with people wearing gloves. Unless you take them off properly, uh, anything on the outside that you've now touched when you remove the glove and you've transferred it right back to your own skin. Just piggy, uh, piggybacking off of that, uh, the glove is a, a smooth surface, um, and obviously the doorknob is, but uh, the fabric on, the, uh, on clothing, can the virus live on fabric? Yes, it, 
it can. I don't have the exact hours it can live on the, that surface yet, but it is below the hard surfaces of three days. Um, but it can be there. The, the, the important thing to remember is it's often difficult to pick the virus back up from a soft surface. So it can live there. It, it will be present, but it becomes a little more difficult to catch it. Um, but because it is there and it is still viable, there's always the risk. So is the newspaper a risk too? That we've had a couple of you know older folks who who don't really do the internet, but they do do newspapers delivered to the house. Could it be carried on the newspaper? Yes. Yeah, it can, and that's one of those surfaces that it's about 24 hours. So you know, if you're okay with yesterday's news, <laughs> let the newspaper sit for a day and it'll be clean. <laughs> is herd immunity a real thing? Uh, absolutely, herd immunity is actually our most protective tool for society for preventing infection. Uh, it's normally made up of a combination of both people that have been infected and recovered and the people we're able to vaccinate. So right now we only have one of those two uh, factors acting and that's the natural exposure to the virus. It's not enough people, it's not good enough and we really need to boost that with some sort of medical intervention like a vaccine. Is COVID considered a strain of the cold or the flu and therefore how does the vaccine come into play? So it is related to the cold. It's the same family of viruses, but it's completely different. So right now we don't have any vaccine for the cold, and it is completely unrelated to the flu. So any flu shots we get or any treatments for flu are are completely separate from COVID-19. So unfortunately, uh, if you got a flu shot, it's not going to help you from this one, but it does still keep you out of the hospital for the flu, and it will prevent, for example, co-infection. So if you're vaccinated for the flu, it's very uh, unlikely you could catch both viruses mm-hmm. at the same time, which has been reported and makes things uh, much more worse. Does any amount of cold kill the virus? And this person is indicating, what if you put your clothing below zero? Would that kill the virus? No, I've not seen any evidence of that at all. And in fact, the colder we, we make things uh, is how we store viruses in the lab. So we freeze our viruses uh, so we can use them again years later. Now, it's a little different than your conventional house uh, freezer. We freeze them uh, uh, about minus 80 degrees Celsius. The house is about minus 18, minus 20. So, uh, but cold does preserve the virus. Thank you so much. You always answer a million questions, and we love it. We've got a a bunch more, so we're ready for you next week as well. (laughs) Thanks for joining us, Doctor. Take care, guys. That is Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor of the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the U of C. If we didn't get to your question, don't worry. We'll hang on to it, and we will ask it for you next Wednesday when he's back. 642 on the morning news. Yesterday, Justin Trudeau announced $350 million to help community groups like charities and nonprofit organizations. What information will come today? We're joined by parliamentary correspondent in Ottawa for Global News, Mike LeCouture. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Great. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, wondering if uh, we have any insight as to what the PM is expected to talk about this morning. Yeah, we're hearing from a senior source in the government that it'll be all about students and young people. Let's not forget that this government over the last couple of weeks has rolled out the Kennedy Emergency Response Benefit, the Kennedy Emergency Wage Subsidy, um, and there have been a number of gaps, they acknowledge, that have uh, been seen as a result of those. So over the last couple of weeks, they've also tried to fill those gaps and address and specifically target some of these groups. So what exactly they'll be providing for students and young people is unclear. We know that student loans uh, and loan forgiveness has been uh, a big issue and that the NDP has been raising the fact that students have been left out in the cold here. And what about students who want or need a job or were planning to have a job coming out of this, um, you know, coming out of this school year? Uh, That could be addressed 
here, but we're not exactly sure. We don't have too many details yet, just knowing that those are the broad strokes and those are the people who will be targeted today by the Prime Minister. Yesterday, PM talked about wage subsidy programs and some more details on that. What, what did we learn about that? Yeah, he announced an online calculator for employers that they could use ahead of the program opening next week on April 27th. It's going to be launched uh, this week so that employers can be fully prepared with all of their paperwork, make sure the application process goes a lot easier than it could have been. Uh, we're being told that um, from government officials that if they do all of this ahead of time, that the application process could take just about five minutes to get through. Uh, it'll open on Monday at 6 a.m., but unlike the CERB, it's not going to be first come, first serve. So what they're going to be doing is gathering all of the applications uh, between April 27th and May 3rd, and it'll be batch processed all at once on May 4th. So there's really no benefit from anybody getting up early on April 27th and trying to hit that, you know, get, be the first one out the door at 6 a.m. Uh, and they believe about 90% of applications will be automatically approved during that May 4th batch process. And those people can expect, those businesses can expect checks or direct deposits on May 6th or May 7th. So they're really hoping uh, once again to get money out the door as soon as possible. And by introducing that calculator, they want everybody to be prepared uh, earlier and, and just, you know, streamline the process, mm-hmm. frankly. Well, in the wake of the uh, deadly shootings in Nova Scotia, the Liberal government has been uh, talking about gun control. I'm wondering uh, what you know, more restrictions and uh, what more, I, I guess you say, restraints on gun control might look like. Has there been any idea? Yeah, the Prime Minister is saying, you know, now is the time to focus on helping the victims, but at the same time, while facing all of these questions about gun control in the wake of this mass shooting, uh, the Prime Minister noted that, look, just before Parliament rose and was suspended due to the COVID-19 pandemic, his government was ready to introduce um, some sort of gun legislation and, you know, gun restriction legislation. He said they were going to introduce what they call a, a ban on assault rifles. And he said it was almost ready to go um, and other aspects that we could be seeing because there, there were none others that the Prime Minister talked about yesterday, but if you look at their campaign promises, it gives you a bit of a good indication of where they might be going. Uh, so that would be like the ban or the buyback program for those so-called assault rifles, giving cities the power to restrict or ban handguns, and these red flag laws uh, that um, Public Safety Minister Bill Blair referred to the day before, saying uh, it, it could be for people who are danger to others or themselves and making sure that they have restrictions around what they can and can't purchase. Uh, and, you know, these are some of the things that they might be looking at. The thing that is interesting to note, guys, is that none of this can be introduced, even though we're talking about it now, until at least May 25th. While we are seeing MPs coming back to Ottawa and meeting uh, and there are these possible virtual meetings happening next week, it is a special version of Parliament that is only dealing with the response to COVID-19. And uh, Parliament can't have any new bills introduced until business resumes again May 25th at the earliest that is in unless you know parliament decides let's uh, delay it once more because mm-hmm. we are still in the middle of this pandemic it'll be interesting to watch we'll follow it up thanks so much mike appreciate you joining us this morning thanks for having me that's mike lecouture parliamentary correspondent in ottawa for global news While the world continues to deal with COVID-19, medical decisions that our public officials make today are going to have far-reaching consequences on people's lives. Uh, The search for the vaccine continues, but we need to make sure our decisions are supported by science. We're joined this morning by Vanier Scholar and PhD candidate in microbiology and immunology at Dalhousie University, Landon Getz. Good morning, Landon. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, thanks so much for joining us. So, you know, I'm curious as to what you thought. Were you worried by Premier Jason Kenney's statement recently that the province might go ahead with testing of medicines, whether given the OK by Health Canada or not? Yeah, it, it is particularly alarming to hear. And the reason for that is because uh, it's my opinion that Health Canada is a stepping stone in a what I call a slow science framework. So really um, making sure that the science that uh, that we have to justify the use of treatments is actually sound and, and good before moving forward. So stepping aside um, from that Health Canada framework um, potentially provides the opportunity for mistakes to be made and, and we would feel the consequences of those mistakes. What about, you know, uh, hanging it on, okay, this has been approved in the UK and uh, the UK as a, as a sound nation, uh, so we should follow their lead. What about, uh, you know, looking at other nations that have approved things? That's not the way to go? I think that part of, of it is, I don't definitely don't want to say that the UK or the United States um, don't have these kinds of frameworks as well, because they certainly do. Um, but the we don't necessarily know what pathway those those things took in those countries, and we definitely don't know um, what reasons they might have for pushing things through. And so uh, just having that extra step for Health Canada to say, okay, is this good for us to use in our country, uh, makes, just allows us to make sure that we're not, uh, like I said, making any mistakes or, or jumping ahead of, of something prematurely. Landon, how are you feeling as we look at the, you know, 70 or so vaccines that they're working on right now? Are you feeling pretty positive that we're going to find something that will help us out in this situation? Uh, definitely. I'm, I'm feeling very optimistic. I think what's been really uh, encouraging is how quickly the scientific community has come together and collaborated on some of these uh, these new treatments and the, the new science that's been coming out. Um, the vaccines that are uh, currently being researched, so like you said, there's about 70 of them. Uh, and that really pushes up the chances that we'll find one that actually works, right? Instead of just testing one vaccine at a time, we'll test 70 and see, uh, okay, um, does one of these work? Are they all safe? Um, are they effective? Those sort of those sort of things. In your opinion, what is the time frame to say that a uh, drug is tried, tested, and true? Is it uh, months or are we talking years? Uh, I don't really have the expertise to answer that question, but what I will say is echo um, the what other public health officials have been saying, which is about 12 to 18 months for vaccines. Um, the reason for this is because it has to go through laboratory tests to find out that the uh, vaccine might work at all uh, and then move into animal models and then clinical trials. And all of these things take take time. Um, we really want to make sure that the treatments that we put out into the world are not only safe, but also uh, will actually work uh, at uh, stopping or, or preventing infections by COVID. You know, I think that, that brings me to my next question, because I wanted to talk to you about that drug that, you know, Donald Trump started talking about it, and then people have been touting it as this miracle cure, that hydroxychloroquine. So that's become the thing that everybody's talking about. But we really know little about that drug in terms of what it might do for COVID patients at this point. That's exactly right. Yeah, we really don't know that much about what uh, what the medication does, whether or not it actually is effective. Um, what's been confusing is that there has been sort of data on both sides. There was early data that showed that it might actually be beneficial and help some patients. And some more recent uh, relatively small clinical trials have shown that uh, the, the doses that you have to give hydroxychloroquine in in order to see benefits um, are actually quite harmful. They have um, pretty negative side effects. And so they can cause things like heart arrhythmias and other things. And so you know, this is about, again, allowing science the time to do the research that needs to be done to verify that treatments are safe and effective um, before we rush ahead and start using things that, that might have um, very significant and potentially fatal uh, side effects. 
In your field, I'm hoping you can have an answer for me when it comes to the herd immunity. Is this something that will happen naturally in time if people don't have the vaccination, and is it effective? Right. So there's a couple of things to consider with uh, the idea of herd immunity. Um, generally, we consider herd immunity when we're talking about vaccines. So we'd, so we'd say that uh, a population has herd immunity when everybody has had the measles vaccine. And so if somebody who doesn't have the vaccine, somebody who can't get it because they're immunocompromised, mm-hmm. uh, they get exposed to measles, it's unlikely that they'll spread it beyond themselves because everybody around them is immune. And so they can't be infected and then go on to infect other people. Right. Um, so herd immunity has been used more recently to talk about, well, why don't we just let people get infected, build up their immunity naturally? And then uh, and then, you know, everybody will be safe from from this virus. And the problem is, of course, that if we do that, um, the number of deaths that we'll see could be quite high. And that would be something, you know, that we definitely don't we don't want to see. Landon, I'm curious as to the historical lessons that we've learned from drugs of the past, and I bring thalidomide in as one of the examples. Is this something that we really need to take into consideration as we're looking at these drugs and, and even moving ahead past what Health Canada advises? So I think that, that thalidomide really tells us that what happens if we push a drug through too quickly or we don't necessarily have the scientific data to show that something is safe, um, people start taking the medications, and then we learn after the fact that there are potentially fatal or very damaging side effects, right? And so over history, we've learned from these mistakes that we've made, and we've changed the frameworks that we have, including those within Health Canada. And so, uh, again, that's really, uh, those are the lessons that we can learn, uh, and, you know, we have learned. And so that's why I think it's so important that we continue to follow the guidelines of Health Canada and the, uh, the approvals of Health Canada uh, instead of trying to move, move ahead of them. Well, thank you very much for spending time with us this morning, Landon. We appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. That is Landon Getz, Vanier Scholar and PhD candidate in microbiology and immunology, Dalhousie University. 718 on the morning news. The death toll in the Nova Scotia shooting is now at 23. We are joined uh, by anchor and reporter for Global News Halifax in New Brunswick, Sarah Ritchie, for the latest on this awful tragedy in Nova Scotia. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. I want to ask you about the latest information that you've come across, including military involvement as far as the investigation is concerned. Yeah, RCMP are really just at the very beginning stages of what's going to be an incredibly long and complex investigation. It involves, as you mentioned, 22 victims plus the gunmen, so 23 people dead over a course of 16 different crime scenes that are centered around the community of Porter Pick, but they're really spread over quite a large swath of rural Nova Scotia. So yesterday, we know that Canadian Armed Forces members were called in. There were about 30 members that came to assist. They were providing things like tactical support, uh, tents and lights and that kind of thing to help RCMP preserve the crime scenes that they still need to process. So that's obviously been a big help. This morning was very rainy in Nova Scotia, so the tents and that kind of thing much needed. There were five different structure fires involved in all of this. So the gunman, it's believed, was actually lighting houses on fire after targeting people inside. And so RCMP had told us on Monday that they were working to process those five different fire scenes. They expected at the time to find more bodies within. That's when we saw the, uh, that's why rather we saw the death toll go up to 22 yesterday. But at this point, we don't know if that's the final count.
Do we suspect there will be any more of an announcement from police in that area today, Sarah? I mean, you know, there's ongoing questions about the RCMP's response, the lack of the emergency alert that went out to prov- the province. Instead, it was used through Twitter. Uh, are we expecting any kind of comment from the RCMP on that today, potentially? Uh, I can tell you that we're certainly hoping for it. Um, What they did yesterday, they decided not to answer questions from reporters. They didn't provide an in-person briefing. Instead, they sent out uh, a press release at about 4 o'clock that included some more details about what happened and a Q&A that they had drafted themselves, which provided a little bit more information. Things like we now know that the gunman in all of this was wearing an authentic RCMP uniform. Now, how he came across that or how he got possession of an authentic uniform we don't know that at this point we're also not sure exactly what happened with that vehicle that he had mocked up to look like an rcmp car we don't know questions uh, remain about things like what kind of weapons was he using and how many different weapons did he use um, and and his exact movements over the course of that 13 or so hours that he was terrorizing rural nova scotia are still unknown so we are awaiting an update from rcmp they promised on monday that they would release a specific timeline that would give us a better indication of not only where he was but also when each event happened and and who was killed at each of these 16 different crime scenes. To that point, do we know anything further about the shooter and his maybe past business dealings or trouble with the law? Did he have a a criminal record? Do we know any any, uh, more information? Yeah, so in RCMP update yesterday, they say he did not have a criminal record. That doesn't mean he didn't have a criminal past. It just means that nothing shows up when you do a criminal record search. What we can tell you through court document searches is that he did have uh, an assault conviction back in 2002. We have a story up on our website detailing uh, from the perspective of the victim in that what happened to him. He says he was brutally beaten by Gabriel Wartman, who he says at the time was drunk. The victim at the time says he was 15 years old so you can uh, read more details about that on our globalnews.ca website we also have another story about his business dealings and some uh some history that he has within the courts it sort of paints a picture of a guy who uh is willing to lend money to people but then seems to take advantage of them in at least two different situations that were taken to court um so Learning a little bit more about him, but as far as, you know, motive and all of that, that's the big question that everybody has. And and none of this, you know, none of any of what we've learned about him suggests that he would go on this kind of horrific killing rampage. No doubt more information coming out about the shooter and we'll find out more about the victims and memorials. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks so much. That's Sarah Ritchie, anchor and reporter for Global News in, in the Maritimes. 6.09 now on your Wednesday morning, and it's hard to believe the price of any commodity, let alone oil, could possibly dip into negative territory, but that's what happened this week. Could it happen again? We're joined this morning by Professor Emeritus of Economics at McMaster University, Atif Kaburzi. Hi, Atif. Yeah, good morning. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. I mean, we know COVID-19 and an oversupply were to blame for these negative oil prices this week. Is it a blip, or, or could it be something that happens again? Yeah, it could happen again. Uh, there are circumstances that could work together. Uh, the story is that it's not only COVID-19. It's also the price war between the Saudis and the Russians vying for dominance and control of the oil market. Uh, both have contributed 
and both went in the same direction, accentuating one another. Uh, the story is, when could it come again? I mean, any time there is excess supply of oil and uh, there is a reduction in demand, uh, the combination is very difficult to believe would be repeated uh, often, but uh, uh, some have suggested that maybe concerns about uh, climate change might make fossil fuel and oil uh, not that attractive, and probably uh, people would like to move off oil. Globally, we're all dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic and globally uh, with a resource trading negative. So are we all on the same playing field or are some countries not going to be impacted as much as we are here in Canada? Uh, some countries may not really be as impacted. Uh, the story is, and it's a telling story, it's one that has been with us for some time. There has been much talk about uh, diversifying the economy, particularly in Alberta. But we haven't done as much as is necessary. So we win ourselves off this oil. We are so dependent on it. Uh, there are countries uh, that would be much worse. Uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia depend on oil far more. They have a less diversified economy. The Saudis very much less than others. Uh, they depend 90% uh, for their export revenues on oil. Uh, about 87% uh, of their budget comes from oil. The Russians are not that far off. I mean, they depend about uh, 60% on uh, oil for uh, their budget and uh, their GDP is uh, about uh, 38% dependent on oil. So what does that mean, Atif, for Alberta oil now? Is this, you know, just collateral damage and the big battle between Russia and Saudi Arabia? And does, does Alberta oil rebound or never really come, come back from this? Uh, there are some very difficult situations in Alberta. It's uh, accentuated, too, by the fact that it's landlocked, that you have to dig in the Rockies to get the oil. You have to transport it to only one market a far distance away. And it's bitumen. It's not easy to refine. It's costly to refine. It's typically sold at 10 to $15 less a barrel than uh, other what we call WTI and much less than Brent. Uh, these are just a quality uh, classification of oil. Ours is one of the dirtiest. So let's talk about the fact that it's because it's such a complex commodity, we're witness right now to very low gas prices, something we have not seen in, in recent memory. And uh, heating our homes is another thing as well uh, when it comes to uh, energies that we talk about, depending on where you are in the nation. But we can't, as consumers, expect things to remain the same because it's kind of a because it's a future um, things will not remain static over the next few months, even if the price is, is very low. Is that right? That's uh, absolutely true. Uh, first, uh, the trouble is, uh, yeah, the price of oil may be because of this, but we can't really take advantage of it. We're all uh, hunkered mm -hmm. in their homes, and uh, we're not traveling. Planes are not flying. Industries are not turning products using oil energy. Uh, so to a great extent, uh, we're uh, uh, reflecting this uh, uh, collateral damage, uh, not only of uh, the uh, struggle between uh, Saudis and uh, Russians and uh, even the Americans are on it, but also because of this COVID-19. Now, uh, once we go back to work, once the uh, 
pandemic is uh, over, uh, one cannot expect that the prices would be as low. And I uh, suggest here that given the heavy dependence of the two major oil producers on oil revenues, uh, they can sit by, sit on the sidelines watching uh, their fortunes, uh, you know, unraveling. They will definitely, in my view, will make the painful decision to cut more production. They cut 9.7 million. This mm-hmm. is the largest cut has ever been done by OPEC plus and their associates. Uh, but it was not enough. Uh, to, you know, uh, 29 million barrels uh, per day have been cut from the market because we are hunkered in our homes. Whoever thought we'd see this for sure. Thank you for joining us with your perspective, Atif. Appreciate it. My pleasure. That's Atif Kaburzi, who is a professor emeritus of economics at McMaster University. 618 now, and cyberbullying is on the rise as kids across the country are spending more time in front of their screens now being home from school. A lot of them would not tell their parents, though, if they were being approached because they're afraid they're going to lose screen time. That's how they're staying connected with their friends right now. So we're joined to talk about this by personal injury lawyer Jasmine Daya. Hi, Jasmine. Hi, hey, thanks, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us again. We've talked before, and I know this is you know something that's right up your alley. You, you deal with this a lot. How, how do we think, you know, as parents, we've got to think ahead and be really protective of our kids, and how do we spot cyberbullying or harassment online? So you're right. We have talked about this recently. Just a couple months ago, we had Pink Shirt Day, which aimed to raise awareness and hopefully prevent ongoing cyberbullying or limit it. Um, Unfortunately, uh, we have a situation now that it appears that cyberbullying is on the rise. So the World Health Organization uh, recently released a joint leader statement uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and and they indicated that 1.5 billion children around the world are impacted by lockdowns and school closures. What that means is that children have a lot more free time, and because um, schools are now doing online learning, and I commend educators and politicians for mobilizing so fast in this country Mm -hmm. to help bring children to have some form of education with um, online education. While that's great, one of the unintended consequences of that is that you're going to have increased cyberbullying. And so, you know, you asked me, how do we look out for this? It's difficult. Parents right now are dealing with their own stressors in life, more so than usual, um, with, you know, jobs being impacted, with not having childcare, with all these additional responsibilities, um, and with anxiety and fear given the pandemic that we're all faced with. Uh, I think that the best thing to do is to communicate with our children as best we can and to make sure that they know that we're there for them. Because right now, all, all they have is parents or legal guardians. They don't have uh, teachers at school or, or community neighbors or anyone else to really go to right now. So what do we do, uh, Jasmine, if we do witness cyberbullying or online harassment of our, of our child in, in a time of pandemic? Are the steps different? The steps are a little different um, in the sense that when we're at school, uh, when the kids are in school, physical school, it means that they can more um, more easily access their teachers to make their complaints known. Children right now through online education can still access uh, 
different administrators at their schools and their teachers. And I encourage parents and children to do that. But it's a lot harder for kids to do that through screens instead of just walking up to their teacher and saying, hey, so-and-so is bothering me. Mm -hmm. As it is for kids, that's so hard to do. So they can still access these individuals. It's just a little bit more difficult. yeah, you can still report these incidences if they are of significant consequences that results in per, uh, potential criminal charges. You still want to report it to the police. Even during a pandemic, the police are available and should be contacted if the cyberbullying is such that we're dealing with criminal a criminal element. What exactly do you think we need to be looking for as parents? If we're checking out what our kids are doing online, what do we look for? Are there some key words, some messaging, that sort of thing? So the best thing to look for is uh, changes in behavior. And again, right now it's so difficult because we don't, I don't think we fully recognize the impact that this pandemic is having on our kids right now to not have the socialization with their friends, to not have their regular routine, to see the stress in, in their parents' lives. Um, you know, I don't think we fully recognize. And, and so it's difficult to determine, you know, are they a victim of cyberbullying or are they just dealing with the pandemic in their own way? Uh, but looking for changes in behavior, uh, looking to see if they're more down than usual. I keep asking my kids how they're doing, how they feel, uh, you know, making sure that they feel encouraged to open up to me. Mm-hmm. But really, it's changes in behavior that you really want to look for. Okay. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Jasmine. We appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That is Jasmine Dea, personal injury lawyer with J.D. Lawyer.